Well, good morning again. This fall, we are going through a series on the life of Abraham. And you know, partly because it's in the Bible, we started on Genesis last fall. But, uh, but Abraham is especially important because Abraham is really uh, the man whose life is defined by faith. Uh, even in the New Testament, you see Abraham constantly being looked at as, as uh, the, the one who lived by faith. And yet, as we started to see last week, there's a lot of ups and downs when we're living by faith. Um, so we pick up with that story in Genesis 13. I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning. It's not very long, but uh, a little bit. And just to refresh your memory about one particular character, uh, there's a man named Lot that's mentioned, and that is Abram's nephew who left uh, the family behind and went along with his uncle. Uh, so you'll hear his name, but just as a refresher. So here we go, Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their, position, their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed the east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities in the valley, uh, uh, <clears throat> cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also could be, can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, as we look to rest in Christ and reflect on who we are in Jesus, as we look to be reinvigorated to go back out uh, after worship, 
Let's pray that God would use his word uh, in our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word and that by it we are changed and transformed. But we know that it's only effective when your spirit is at work to illuminate it so that we can understand it and to drive it deep into our hearts so that it was not without effect. We pray that your spirit would be at work, that we would understand Jesus more even through this passage. We ask in his name. Amen. Do you know what a monkey trap is? I don't actually know if these, these work, but allegedly, if you're trying to catch a monkey, what you do is you create a box that has a hole in it just big enough for the monkey's hand. But you put an object in there that it wants that's bigger than the hole. And because the monkey wants it, he will try to get it out. And will get stuck there because he can't get the object out of the box. Now, I don't know. I don't know if it actually works. I've not tried it. Um, but it's funny. We use, we use the idea of grasping something, holding on to something, as more than simply a metaphor. If I ask you, what do you hold on to? You know I'm not asking about what your hand is actually grasping. But we can't get away from that metaphor because it's a powerful one. That we hold on to things that we love. Again, sometimes physically, but more often than not, we mean that as a metaphor. Because the moments we are hanging on to it are symbolic of what's actually going on in our hearts. And this is a story about Abram learning to live generously and of somebody else grasping on to things. Tells us a lot about who they are. And we start to see something interesting about what it means to live by faith. To live by faith means to live generously. And that may seem counterintuitive, as if the two have nothing to do with each other, but I think, as we'll see, they have everything to do with one another. So, the image of a hand is helpful then as we think through this. We'll see one person who has a grasping hand, who's stuck in the monkey trap. We'll see another person who has an open hand, and we'll see yet another that has a supporting hand. So a grasping hand, an open hand, and a supporting hand. The grasping hand, you might have guessed, is pretty obvious. It's Lot. Now, you understand the situation here. Abram and his family, and Lot apparently was with them in Egypt, have come back. And what is traced is, there, is they come back into the Negev, which is in the south of Israel. And they kind of move back up to Bethel, which is more or less in the center of the promised land. And it's one of the places that back in chapter 12, God had spoken to Abram and he had set up an altar. So he's sort of coming back, as it were, refocusing. But Bethel is also on this mountain range that looks off uh, to the west. It looks off to the, uh, the hills and then the plains that lead down to the Mediterranean, which is fine land, uh, but, you know, semi-arid. It's, you know, it, it, there's, you have to do a little more work on it. But if you look off to the east from that mountain range, you get the Jordan River Valley, which to this day is lush. It's good land. 
uh, and runs down, of course, to the Dead Sea, and there's some indication that the Dead Sea was, was more lush uh, a long time ago than it is now. Uh, but, uh, but that whole area, right, which was great especially for livestock and things like that. You want a lush region, right? If you're, the more arid the climate is, the more you've got to move everybody around. So you see what's going on, right? Abraham and Lot have both been blessed. Lot, apparently, because he's with Abraham, has been blessed a lot. His herds have grown, and he's given a choice. And it seems pretty obvious, right? This, the Jordan River Valley is lush. Why not go there? <laughs> the... Yeah, the author says, it was like the Garden of Eden. That's what he means by the Garden of the Lord. And, and yet, here's the thing. We see that Lot is making some calculations. This is important to understand. On the one hand, he is given an honest offer by Abram, and so it would make sense, right? Take, why, why not just go ahead and take what's really what's really lush. But on the other hand, we're told something about some of the cities down there. It's important, right? Verse 10, we are told that this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's actually some expectation. You already know the story that's going to happen in chapter 19 uh, of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll get there. (laughs) But uh, it's, it's expecting you basically already know this story. You know what this place is like. Verse 13 goes out of its way, breaks the narrative flow to make a comment. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. In other words, it is pretty clear we were, that Lot understood that. Lot knew what was going on. Which means that as Lot is looking around, he is either indifferent about moving into that neighborhood or presumptuous about his own ability to remain unaffected. Which, as we will see in chapter 19, most certainly he is not unaffected. Lot's an opportunist. He sees a good deal and he goes for it. I think a lot, of, a lot of Americans have historically thought of themselves as being savvy, looking for a good opportunity. But one of the dangers of being an opportunist is that the ends justify the means. We think we've got a good goal, and so whatever it takes, we've got to reach that. And the ends justifying the means are always a dangerous way of thinking. Uh, It means that we have something we want so much that we will let it override what we know is a better, a wiser, or more righteous choice. For some of us, maybe that is material wealth. I mean, there's certainly plenty of stories about that. Uh, maybe it's about our pride, our ambitions, our own need for security, emotional or tangible, physical. Whatever it is, we have something that tempts us at least towards thinking 
that we need to preserve it no matter what the cost. And you know you're starting to think this way when the only restraints that really keep you in check are external. Legal or social demands, right? Which is little wonder, you know, being a campus minister, I, for a long time I talked with a lot of college students, and this is exactly what happens when they get to college, right? The restraints are off. And a lot of the poor choices you make when you're in college, especially as a college freshman, are about those external restraints coming off. Because you're not that worried. Mom and dad aren't going to know, probably. It's by and large actually a situation in which you're usually shielded from a lot of the consequences of your decisions. And so the restraints are off. And a lot of people make a lot of mistakes. Uh, But this also happens as you get older in life, doesn't it? Maybe you get more secure financially, more confident in your position, in your career, in your home, whatever it may be. And the restraints start to come off. And we start to learn what it is that we really value, whether we'd like to admit it or not. And the external restraints tell us something important because that means external restraints only work by fear and or shame, which are poor motivations in the long run. They do not motivate healthy or long-term change. I'm not saying every restraint is bad. Right? Even, the, even as a Christian, you need a little restraint for when you're tempted to make a bad decision. That can be a help, but it's only a speed bump, right? That over the long term, that doesn't really create health because, again, once the restraints come off, once we're not afraid of the consequences anymore, we'll blow right past it. Or worse, if fear or shame become an indelible part of our personality, we will be deeply unhealthy. Not just from a psychological standpoint, though that's certainly true, but ultimately that becomes the frame of mind in which we understand everyone else. It becomes the frame of mind through which we interpret God himself. We can't understand God without fear or shame. And so the trade-offs are obvious then if we're an opportunist. We trade away our heart. That's the real cost over the long term, isn't it? We want something so badly, but what we become in the process is terrible. I one hand, I think sometimes I have to, as a minister, convince people that the things that they're doing are actually wrong and destructive. And sometimes that's true. But the longer I do this, and certainly the further along someone else is in life, the more I realize that most people have a nagging conscience. They realize they have started to make those trade-offs even if they're not willing to admit it that we have pursued certain things so hard 
And we're afraid to be honest about what that's made us, what we have become in the process. So we give ourselves away. We also give away, and this is where it starts to probably become obvious first, is our relationships, right? Because if, you, if your own heart's expendable, you better believe other people are. And the proof that we are, that we've been willing to trade that off is the trail of people we've hurt behind us. Again, this is not just a problem that's out there. This happens in the church. I mean, I know of ministers who have left a trail of hurt people behind them. Being an opportunist leads you to think of others as expendable. They may be useful for a time, right? But that time will probably run out sooner or later. Being an opportunist often, portray, often you know, portrays itself as being savvy, as being wise to the way of the world, but in the end it is a punishing road. Full of regret. But notice the opposite of that is Abram himself. Abram isn't grasping for things now. He has an open hand. Again, he's come back from that nearly disastrous trip to Egypt, which we talked about last week, where he was deeply concerned about the risks that he, was, that, he, that he had, right? He was trying to protect himself. He was trying to think about how to make it all work. And he comes back, and what we see, as I already mentioned, is he's retracing his steps back to kind of the heart of the promised land, back to a place God had met him. And it's not a passing or inconsequential statement made at the end of verse 4 that there he called upon the name of the Lord. He had thought he could do everything himself, and he had left the promised land, and he had hatched his own schemes, and they fell apart, and it was nearly disastrous. And now he's coming back to the Lord. And I think it's pretty clear that that has shaped him. So that when he gets back, and he's wealthy, and and he's got his nephew there who's also become wealthy, and they're trying to figure things out, instead of hatching his own scheme, he gives Lot an open handed offer go where you want. I'll work around it. You go one way, I'll go the other. He's willing to give what it takes to be at peace. He's not anxious to expand his portfolio. He isn't anxious to gain more He's learned a key lesson, right? That those who live by faith end up becoming much more generous because they don't have so much to lose. Think about areas in which you could be generous. Uh, You know, the money and material goods are the obvious, probably, first thing we think about. As rightly we should, right? Money is meant to be given away. 
The Bible's pretty clear about that. We're supposed to be good stewards of it. I'm not denying stewardship as an important principle, but the whole point of stewardship is to give it away wisely. What about, but it's more than that, right? I mean, and maybe you're here and you're like, I don't have that much money. Fair enough. Better yet, even if you do have a decent amount of money, there's more. <laughs> it's not just about giving away money. It's about also your time, your energy, your attention, your affection. It's about giving your heart. Abram is not cutting Lot off emotionally, <laughs> relationally. We'll, we'll see this next week. <laughs> uh, he is not cutting him off that way. Rather, it is out of his care for a lot that he's saying, look, it's better if you, we go live in different places in order to actually care for one another well. And so interesting then, generosity, real generosity, has a, always has a certain amount of risk to it. It really always will, just like love has a risk to it. Uh, we think that being savvy is what we need to be, but really we're called to be stewards of the money, the time, the energy, the effort, the love that we're given. Again, not to hoard it, but to give it to others. I used to do a lot of fundraising, of course, as a campus minister for 10 years. Um, and I, I, it is miraculous that I raised money for 10 years. I'm not a good fundraiser. Uh, I literally don't know how it happened. You know, like I, I could not probably sit down and give you an account of how it worked out, but it did. Praise the Lord. I, uh, but I did have occasions now and then to sit down with people who could write some really big checks. And it was funny. I mean, I'm talking to them about ministry. And it was always a fine line between somebody who was just trying to steward their money well and understand what it was you were doing and thinking about, okay, is this, a, is this really worthwhile to give money to? And people who thought that they had to invest in something that was going to just give returns. You know what I'm saying? It's the difference between trying to be savvy and trying to be a good steward. I would sometimes meet with people who, you know, they were trying to wisely give the money that God had given them. And that's great. That's the right way to do it. You shouldn't, I don't think you should just throw your money around. And yet, and yet, there can be a really fine distinction there between those who simply had their vision for what ministry always ought to be, regardless of whether they really had any clue what was going on on the ground. Uh, and they wanted you to conform to that. The money was always tied to whether you were sort of for their agenda or not. They were thinking as opportunists, really. Even though they were talking to you about ministry, doing ministry, they were still thinking as an opportunist. 
those were always discouraging meetings <laughs> to walk away from. Uh, and partly because, well, maybe I'm too thick-headed, but at least enough to know when somebody just wanted me to make an agenda. Um, you see, being generous, taking on that risk, has to be rooted in some sort of confidence that the risks are worth it. And that you won't be undone by the loss if it turns out to be a loss. To actually be somebody who's generous means you have to have confidence elsewhere. So what is it that you have to give? What is it God's calling you to give? And why, what are you concerned about losing? Those are the questions you have to ask. You know, some of that, again, may be financial, but some of that may be about your time and your energy and your affection. But being generous is powerful. If, if being uh, an opportunist is punishing, being generous actually is powerful. I mean, first off, because you actually do affect other people's lives. And I'm not just talking about a squishy kind of good feeling. You're actually helping them. And being willing to take some risk means that you get to see real change happens. It's not a guarantee. But you see the opportunity to help them in ways that perhaps only you can at that moment anyway. And their lives are changed. But it also means that we get freed up from mercenary thinking, right? That I'm bound by the money that I have. Do you remember the, the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? When Scrooge sees Marley, his old business associate, right? He said he's pulling chains behind him. <laughs> and they were the chains, they were the shackles of the money that he had hoarded. To be hoarding, whether it's your money or your time or your energy, actually is to be shackled. And to learn to give it away is to be free from those kinds of shackles. That's what real stewardship, real investment is. I know some of you are thinking, but how much do I give away, right? I mean, it's that old question of like luxury and modesty in the Christian life. And there's always been some who have been tempted to say, well, okay, the ideal would be to live in poverty. Well, that is not Abram's life, for one thing. And you really search the New Testament in vain to find that being laid on others, especially, you know, there, there are a few cherry-picked verses read out of context that may lead people to think that. That's never what we're told. There, there's never, you know, there's never really like a minimum income that's described or some sort of minimum house size or anything like that. Instead, the standard is both much more freeing but much more rigorous. It is the question of are you being generous? Are you being generous? 
It may be. The question, answering that question may begin with your wallet, but it leads to your heart. Are you being generous? Which leads us to the last point. We know that Lot has the grasping hand and that Abram has open hands, but it is God's supporting hands, of course, that are underneath all of this. Do you notice at the end here, Lot has made his decision and he's headed off. God speaks to Abram again. Starting in verse 14. And he reminds him, he tells him, look around. I promised, he reminds him, I promised you all this land and I'm still going to make good on it. And I'm going to give it to your offspring. And here he elaborates the initial promise. Right? He says, your offspring are going to be like the sand on the seashore. Which is to say, of course, uncountable. <laughs> right? The statement that if you could count that, then you could, yeah, is, is, a, is an impossibility. <laughs> he reminds him that he is going to promise everything. And then he calls him in verse 17 to live as a sojourner. To live as somebody who doesn't settle. God has all those promises for him and for his offspring, and yet he tells Abram to continue to live on the move. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, comments on Abram at length, actually. This is... uh, Here's a little part of it in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of, of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He goes on just a little bit later to say, uh, these all, meaning Abram and those before him, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abram is called to be a sojourner, and it's interesting, isn't it, that Hebrews is telling us we have the same existence. In 1 Peter 2, Peter will say that we are sojourners and exiles. It's the same kind of language. But to be a sojourner is to be someone in in an exilic life, as we're called to be in the Bible, is to be generous on the way. Generous because we recognize that that's who God himself is. The promise of the land was only a temporary measure. This is important to remember. The whole image of the the promised land and God's presence in it was still only a temporary measure to give us a picture of what it would be like when God himself returned fully and finally. The land was never an end in and of itself. It was always a symbol of what it would be to live in God's presence. 
And that is made that much clearer when we actually realize who the true offspring of God of Abram is. It is Jesus himself, right? Because the offspring that would bless all the nations is Jesus. We'll have more occasion to think (laughs) about that again. But remember this, that Jesus, of course, is the very presence of God showing up. God incarnate. God veiled in the flesh. One theologian puts it this way. He says, When he took on him the form of a servant in our nature, he became what he had not been before, the God-man, but he did not cease to be what he had always been in his divine nature. Jesus didn't change in that way. And so when Jesus shows up, and this is part of the mystery of the gospel, it is one of the great mysteries of the gospel, is that God showed up in the flesh like us, Enduring everything that we endured, but without sin. And moreover, because he was like us, giving his life for ours. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, it costs God nothing, as so far as we know, to create. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. Understand that? Stop and think about that for just a moment. In God's great work of creation, it cost him nothing. All the beauties of his creation, nothing but a word. But to redeem us out of what we had become, it cost the life of his son. And I'll tell you something further. He knew it when he made us. He entered in. To cre- he, well, he made creation itself knowing he would have to enter in to give his only son for our sake. And he still counted it worth doing. You see, the supporting hand of God is generous from the beginning. This is why generosity and a life of faith go together. Because it's only when we understand that God is the one who is truly and really generous, the one who has everything and yet gave everything for us. When we trust in Him, we learn to view our lives differently. I mean, what do you have that you cannot lose? I mean that two ways. <laughs> you understand? What do you have that you cannot lose? I, I really mean, what do you have that you couldn't give away? You could give away everything, and it would be okay. It really would be. And yet, I also mean, what do you have, which is to say Jesus, that you cannot lose? You, will, you won't lose Jesus. This is the whole point, right? So that we have Jesus now in part because he has given himself and he has given us his spirit, and one day we will have him fully. We will know what the land was supposed to be like because we will see God face to face. We will be with him, and we will never want for anything. 
we won't be worried about whether we have enough. And, I mean, that's obvious perhaps even, in the, you know, especially in the material sense, right? We're not going to want in that way, but you won't want for time. You'll have more time than you ever could possibly have imagined. So all those things you want to pursue, you'll have time. Those opportunities you want to pursue, you'll have time. But for the time being, we are given this time to be generous because we have a generous God who has bought us at the price of His own Son. So to trust in Him gives us the kind of confidence we need to be generous. It means we can give what it takes to love others well. It means that we can trust that sacrificial generosity does not disappoint, but gives us the opportunity to understand more of God's own heart, the opportunity to become like Him, so that when we do see Him face to face, we will already recognize something of the family image that He stamped on us. Let's pray. Father, we are not quick to be generous. We're usually thinking about what we're going to lose in most situations. But we praise you that you are not that way. That from the very beginning, you knew the costs and you considered it worth it. So that your love never fails. And your love is always generous. Would you give us generous hearts that we would live open-handedly? Certainly with our money and our good, material goods, but more than with our time, with our energy, with our hearts. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.